0: Welcome to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we continue our ongoing faculty spotlight series, what we call Office Hours, with an interview with Robert Caraway. Robert is the Yorgos Alianis Distinguished Associate Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School of Business, and he is also a member of the Quantitative Analysis Faculty Group. In this wide range conversation, we talk with Robert about a lot of different things. As you will learn from the interview, Robert has been at Darden for almost four decades, and he offers his thoughts on the community that exists here at the school, the important role the case method plays in not only the learning experience, but also the social experience for Darden students. And he also touches upon his research interests. His interests primarily explore the important role that intuition plays when using analytical tools and frameworks. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Robert Carroll. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and get started. We'll ease into this session. Thank you everybody for sharing uh, where you're calling in from via, via the chat. It's great to have you here for this conversation. This is office hours. This is our ongoing faculty spotlight series. Robert, this is the 15th installment uh, of this series. So we are we are making some progress here. But shame on me for waiting this long to get a North Carolinian on this. Uh, as a fellow North Carolinian, you would have figured this is where we would start, uh, but here we are, you know? <laughs> so um, thank you for thank you for joining. Thanks to everybody for being online today. It's so much fun hosting these conversations and giving you a chance to get to know the faculty uh, who teach here. And, and Robert, interestingly enough, as, as you will learn as we go along, uh, he's taught in the full time residential program, the executive MBA program, and will be teaching in the part time program, not to mention executive education. So he will uh, have engaged with all of the MBA format students here here at Darden uh, once the part-time program gets up up and running. The Inaugural cohort starts this August. So Robert, tell us a little bit a little bit more about you and, and who you are.
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I am starting my, I think, his 39th year on the faculty at Darden. Uh, and as Brad has heard me say many times, I want to emphasize that I started as a child. So I'm really not as old as you think I am. Um, actually, I came to Darden, so in 1984, I uh, teach in the area that we call quantitative analysis. Um, my background is in math and um, my choice of careers, it, it was kind of a little bit of a roundabout uh, way that I got where I am today. I um, graduated from college with a degree in math, had no idea what I wanted to do. So uh, I I followed a colleague of mine to a local high school where I coached basketball and taught math for three years. Then I decided it was time to grow up and figure out what I wanted to do for in my life. So uh, I thought business, I, I wanna do business and I have no idea about what business is. So I'm gonna go get my MBA. In the process of getting my MBA during that very first year, I took the basically the equivalent of our decision analysis course that I currently teach. I just absolutely fell in love with it. It was the perfect combination of math, but math applied to real issues with real people, fell in love with it. Um, Oddly enough, I was not, when I decided at that point to go on and get my PhD, um, I was not planning to go into academia. I was gonna go in the private sector because I just uh, loved the idea of actually applying some of this stuff. Um, And uh, I, I I came to Darden. I I really came and interviewed at Darden. It was one of the very few schools I interviewed at um, because a former professor of mine was on the faculty, was visiting here. And he said, hey, they got an opening in this area. You should come talk to them. Um, I came and visited after spending a day here. I absolutely fell in love with the place and I knew it was absolutely the perfect place for me. Um, so my, my, uh, the second choice for a job for me was, uh, AT&T's Bell Labs in New Jersey, which at that time it was the place to go if you actually wanted to practice operations research or management science. But honestly, when I found a place that, uh, an academic institution which cared so much about actual practice, uh, I realized that this would be just
0: perfect for me. So a little bit of background there, Brett. Um, well, thank you for sharing all of that, Robert. And as I mentioned at the top, you've taught full-time MBA students, executive MBA students, and you will be teaching part-time MBA students uh, in, the, in the coming year. Um, what's it like to teach in these different programs? Do the classrooms feel similar, different? You know, What's what's the experience like? Well, first of
1: all, they're, all three are tied for my favorite students. I just want to make that clear up front. You know, the, the material we cover is basically the same what we do though in each one of the three programs is we target the material at what is most relevant to the people in that program. So when I say we use the same material, we cover the same topics, we use most of the same cases. Um, and one difference, I guess it comes immediately to mind to me um, is for um, in the, in the, the uh, residential program, Most of the the people who attend and graduate are in their late 20s, early 30s. There is a well-defined market for those folks and they're all expected to be competent at Excel. And so one of the things we have expectations that you can actually use Excel to build models, to do sensitivity analysis and the like. And, um, And so they do a lot of their prep is really digging into those details. Now, for the executive uh, MBA program, we'll do the same cases, but it is not as important for most of those people, many of whom are in their mid to late 30s or early 40s. They're sort of past that point in their careers where they're expected to be really proficient in Excel. Uh, And so while we'll use the same things, we won't expect quite as much of Excel expertise. What we will expect, though, is a higher level of being able to look at a situation and determine what needs to be done here. What are the issues I need to work with in the residential program on an exam? You might get away with doing a lot of detail, but you know, maybe you don't really get the big picture completely opposite in the executive MBA program. We really expect you to be able to lay out the big picture what this is all about and then to interpret the results where someone else maybe has built the model. So, And professional MBAs starting this fall, we'll see. We'll see. Uh,
0: Well, I appreciate all of that. And I think it's a really good perspective about the thing that we always talk from an admission standpoint is about how the faculty teaches the audience and are keeping in mind developmentally where these students are and where they're going and what will be most helpful to them. And, of course, the audience, the makeup of the classroom is different in in these programs. And so, Mm -hmm. You've also been dean for degree programs at Darden before, I think about five years or so from 2006 to 2011. What was that role like? I mean, it's one thing to be in the classroom and it's another thing to be in that more administrative role.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was uh, it it was quite a a switch for me, although I have to say in those senior associate dean roles at Darden, um, they have they have been they're almost always filled by a faculty member. And most faculty members will serve for three to five years in that role and then step down, return to the faculty and someone else will step into it. And so, you know, a lot of it just has to do with our commitment to the institution. And, you know, that was something that really surprised me at at Darden was how much the faculty actually feel like they own the institution. And therefore we run the institution, we run the programs. In, in my in that administrative role, Brad, I got to visit uh, some other schools, and, and I was sort of surprised to see in a lot of them it was staff and professionals who sort of did a lot of the design, and the faculty just sort of tell me when to show up and teach, and I will. And I thought, well, that's uh, that, that's not the way it is at Darden at all. I mean, we we feel like we own the program, and we're going to make sure that that what we do is what we want to do and what's best for the, uh, the students. So moving into the administrative role was just continuing that from a slightly different vantage point. Uh, it was wonderful for me to get to work with so many staff people in admissions and in the uh, Career Development Center and the like. It helps, I think, the more we faculty get to know kind of the behind the scenes inner workings of things like the finance. And I think once we return to the faculty, we we have a much better idea of what are the issues and what do we need to be aware of as we go forward. But I I don't know. I uh, we launched the executive MBA program uh, was we launched at the same time that I stepped into that role. So uh, and, you know, we weren't sure how it was going to go. We actually were late. I, I don't know if you all that are maybe in the MBA program are aware of. We launched our program much later than much most institutions and that in part was because of this faculty ownership issue. We were not going to launch that program until we felt like we could deliver it at the level that we wanted to deliver it at. So finally, uh, in the uh, early 2000s, we thought we had finally gotten the sort of resources available that we could actually um, launch this and I've been really enjoyed teaching in it over the years.
0: I appreciate that. I was I was doing the math on that. 2006 would have been the year um, right. for for that, and uh, we noted earlier this year that well, we were effectively in the 15th anniversary of the Executive wow. MBA program, which wow. is which is incredible. And uh, this year also corresponded to our fifth year operating in the DC metro area, which is in, incredible. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Executive MBA program was the tip of the spear, so to speak. It was our our first entry into the DC area with uh, one section way back in uh, 2016, our class of 2018, and now that program is fully based here. So an incredible uh, run for for that particular program. So one of the things that we've enjoyed talking about here on Office Hours, and I think you're somebody who has a a really great perspective on this, is learning in the case method. And I think about your subject matter, we talked with Manel Balsells, your colleague in the QA faculty area about this earlier teaching decision analysis through the case method, what's it like uh, to learn and to teach uh, through this particular methodology?
1: You know, when I showed up at Darden, I had really never been at a case method uh, institution before. And so I wasn't really sure what this was gonna be uh, like, but I'll tell you a story that maybe describes the case method to me a little bit. And, And it was when I came and interviewed here I sat in on a class, uh, a decision analysis class taught by one of my now now retired colleagues, Sherwood Fry, uh, and they kind of let everyone who's coming in to interview as faculty. We they let us sit in the back of a classroom to sort of experience what it's like. Um, at that point in time, Brett, I had been, you know, undergraduate. I'd been through an MBA program. I'd been through a PhD program. I had taught in an MBA and an undergraduate program. And uh, as I sat in the back of that classroom for the first time in my life, I thought I saw the potential of in-classroom education actually being realized. And the key was the engagement of the students. It was clear to me that the students were running the classroom. My colleague was up front, and he was facilitating the conversation. Let me give you one example. So. Um, he calls on someone who says something that is wrong from the math standpoint, what they said was wrong. And, uh, my colleague Sherwood looked at them, nodded his head, said, so this is what you mean? And the person said, yes. And then he turned and called on somebody else. I'm sitting in the back going, Whoa, no, 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 no. You gotta, that's wrong. What that guy said is wrong. You've got to correct it. And sure enough, the next person he called on didn't say anything about it. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Everyone thinks that's true. But two or three people later, he called on someone who said, well, I want to go back to what so-and-so said. I don't think that's right. And so with, with Sherwood's gentle touch, the class sort of figured out, oh, okay, this is, this is how we should be going here. Now you might ask, well, so, Why is that better than uh, Sherwood just simply saying, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Here's the right way to think about it. I think it has to do with the stickiness of the learning, that uh, having sort of wrestled through it themselves. uh, And as faculty members, we sort of make sure you come out the right end of the tunnel. But wrestling with it themselves is one of those things that makes learning really sticky. Uh, and that's what our goal is. Our goal is n- not to get you ready to pass the exam so that you can get your MBA, even though we know that's important to you, and it's a necessary step. But our goal is to try to help give you things that will help you once you get out there and launch your your career. And the only way that happens is if you're able to own things yourself. And you're not going to own them if you just sit there and say, "This is what Robert Caraway says." You only own it if you actually figure out what it means to you. And that's why I'm such a believer in case method. I couldn't imagine teaching. I mean, we teach statistics with the case method. I couldn't imagine teaching statistics any other way. Because if you don't know why you're doing something, it doesn't matter if you know what to do. If you don't know why you're doing it, whether you do it right or wrong, it's probably not going to affect what you decide uh, your course of action is. So I, I think that's what we're really trying to get to is to help you understand the why. We give you all sorts of support for, for how to do something. Um, we will give you videos that you can watch. There will be things you can read, uh, all sorts of support things outside of class. But in the classroom, what we're doing is trying to figure out what should this business do? And what is this, what is this analysis telling us? What's the insight we can gain from it? So, that for me is kind of the, the guts of the case method. If, can I say one more thing? Because I'm sorry, I'm just going to talk too much. Um, part, uh, another reason we really like this is we have a philosophy at Dart, and we believe that, that business is an intrinsically social phenomenon. It's about people. And so, we've actually, we, we believe the case method and the environment we've established around it is a social environment. You learn by interacting with other people, not by sitting in your apartment reading, but by actually talking to other people and interacting with them. The, the beauty of that is as you're learning finance and marketing and quantitative analysis, you're exercising exactly those social interaction skills that are gonna turn out to be so valuable and important to you as you go through your career. So that for me is a kind of a second advantage of the, the case method.
0: One of the things I've heard you talk about, Robert, is how the Darden community, maybe unlike at some other places, but the Darden community really begins in the classroom because of that social dynamic.
1: Yeah, you know, every school talks about community, you know, and how we have a good community. But Brad, I've always found it interesting that um, when other schools, when I hear them talk about community, by definition, they mean what goes on outside the classroom. There's the curriculum, and then there's the community. And I think, you know, what you said is exactly, for me, one of the reasons I believe we have an even stronger community is there's not a separation. Uh, community, the classroom is part of the community. People get to know each other in the classroom, they get to discuss things. And so I, I think there's even a, a greater opportunity to build a strong community uh, because we have that extra sort of interaction space.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And one of the things that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is decision analysis is obviously part of the core curriculum and you take a lot of other classes as part of that core, right, accounting, finance, marketing, operations, mm-hmm. all the classes you would expect to find in a core curriculum in business school. In your opinion, how does decision analysis fit within that context? What does it add uh, to, to that mix?
1: Um, I, I, I'm trying to think about, I saw something, the, uh, I I was watching some movie or television show. Oh, I know what it was. It was the, the movie about 1715 about the two guys and the train in Europe, but it shows one of them prior to that was in a classroom where they were learning statistics, I think, And the woman in front, the teacher said, no matter what you choose to do, you're going to do numbers. You you just have to expect in this day and age, you're going to do numbers. So you've got to have some literacy with numbers. So what we do in our course is we try to support Brett, all the other courses, by helping people get more comfortable with, um, with using numbers, with manipulating numbers, and I think more crucially, understanding what the numbers are actually telling them. Uh, the cases we use in our course, we'll do marketing cases, we'll do finance cases, we'll do operations cases. Um, we'll kind of touch all of those other disciplines and show you how, within the frameworks that you're learning in those courses, how the quantitative analysis plays in to help support those uh, those different frameworks. So. Um, it's, uh yeah, it's, it's you know, and the, we all know today data analytics is sort of what it's all about, and it's getting even more and more important. And, and again, it, it's not that the requirements of math are higher, Brett, because I don't think they are. I think what's higher is the ability to understand what the numbers are actually saying to you and uh, and how you can take those insights and use them to help make better decisions.
0: That's one of the things that I've been consistently struck by when I talk with the quantitative analysis faculty, almost to a person, they end up talking about communication and the ability to express an idea and say, this is what we're seeing here and to socialize that idea, which, you know, when you hear something like decision analysis and you hear about Excel and all these tools that get used to derive, a, you know, an answer or a decision or something like that you tend to think about like math stats all the stuff that you talked about here but communication always keeps coming up to the surface
1: i um i often say it's not about being the smartest person in the room it's about being the most influential person in the room and it's one of the reasons Brett why even people with very strong math or engineering backgrounds they still take the first year required course in decision analysis and and in some cases it's not that they're going to learn a lot of new stuff in terms of the actual analytical techniques but number one they're going to see them applied in a different way (laughs) they're going to see them applied in a context where we're not trying to put people on mars we're trying to sell shoes and so they're going to learn that the exactitude that they that existed in their previous world is simply not there in a social context, such as what business is. But the bigger thing is they get to spend uh, the class talking to other people who do not have their level of quantitative skill or background or understanding. And part of what they really get out of the class when they embrace it is they really expand their ability to, as you say, communicate and influence others. Uh, And I, you know, It's hard to see that sometimes when you're in the middle of it, but I think that that is is every bit as valuable a skill for them to be developing as it is for the novice to be developing an understanding of the analytical techniques themselves.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about that because we also have specialized masters here at the Darden School of Business that's offered in partnership with the McIntyre School of Commerce here at UVA, the MS in Business Analytics. And when you talk to the faculty who lead that program and the students who are in it, communication is central to what's happening in that. So it's a, it's a nice thread uh, between what you're sharing here and, and that specialized master's as well. Um, so, Robert, I know you've, you've taught many cases uh, through your career and time here at the Darden School of Business. It seems a little cruel to say, do you have a favorite case or is there a particular case you want to you wanna talk about here? But is, is there a case that you just really love teaching the student?
1: I think if you ask uh, most alums, is there a case from a decision analysis that you remember, Brett, you know, what's coming. They're going to say, George's t-shirts, um, George's t-shirts. Uh, it, it's not, it, it is what we call an armchaired case. It's based on people's experience, but it's not an actual situation, but it's a, it's a, it's a person who sells t-shirts outside a concert venue. And the person has to order T-shirts ahead of time, and has to decide how many T-shirts to order. What uh, the person has to factor in is well, how many people do I think are going to attend the T the concert? How popular do I think my T-shirt design is going to be? There are a number of uncertainties that that person has to factor in, and um, it, it is it is the kind of case that is is. Seen in so many different business contexts. In fact, we, we actually have a word for it. We call it the news vendor problem in my profession. It's, you know, how many newspapers, if you're selling newspapers, how many do you order for a given day, knowing that you're going to have to throw away the ones you don't uh, sell? But if you run out, then you lose the profit on the ones you didn't have. Well, that same situation is there in George's t shirts and it is, uh, it, Again, if you, I tell you, I, I was, uh, I was actually teaching a few years ago an executive program and uh, I just happened to get an email uh, while I was in the middle of teaching that program. And it was an alum from maybe 10 years out who said, Hey, uh, I've got a client that I'm pretty sure they're making the same mistake we made in the George's T-shirts case. (laughs) Now there's a mathematical name for that. There, there's a name. I'm sure that person has no idea what that name is, but that person remembers George's t shirts. And that's the power, I think, of cases, Brad, is their stories. And the stories make them stick with you more than if it was just an abstract mathematical concept. So yeah. Yeah, I'd have to say George's t shirts is my favorite.
0: Well, I appreciate that and I mean it picks up on the stickiness point. You, you and I think it's amazing when we go to alumni events and you talk to alums who can still remember the cases that they read five, 10, 15, 20 years ago
1: mm-hmm. And incidentally everybody if you're if you're entering any program, you will all have George's t-shirts and I did not give away the answer so
0: <laughs> important detail. important um, detail. Well, I, I see we're getting a few questions in the q and I do just want a, a shout out for our attendees here. Um, we take the first kind of third of the conversation to set a little bit of background, introduce you uh, to Darden if you're new to learning a little bit about the learning experience and the pedagogy here. And then we kind of use this sort of second uh, portion, the last 20, 30 minutes or so to kind of talk uh, with the guest, Robert, in this case, about his research interests and you know what he spent his time sort of thinking about in this particular area. And so, Robert, I want to, I want to take this as an opportunity to, to transition to kind of thinking about, you know, you're almost four decades here at the Darden School, and where quantitative That's analysis, yeah, well, you did start as a child. I, I, wanted, did. I, wanted, That's I wanted to note that again. Yes. A prodigy. Um, yes. And so, how has the QA area evolved? It sounds to you like the, the math has been pretty consistent. Maybe the tools have changed a little bit. I don't want to speak for you here, but how has it evolved?
1: No, the contexts have changed, but I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, there's all the talk now about data analytics. And I think if you're not in that world, you think, oh, my goodness, there's a whole bunch of brand new technique. There are some new techniques at the margins, but the goal is still the same. The goal of trying to look at the data and gain insight that might help you make a better decision. That piece really hasn't changed a lot. Um, basic statistics have not changed that much. What has changed is our ability to take much bigger data sets and apply our tools to them, which gives us maybe a, a little more confidence in the results that we come up with. So um, I think what, what we've seen is some evolution in tools. So here's how old I am. When I first started teaching, there were no laptops. Nobody had a computer in the classroom. Spreadsheets were first becoming available. VisiCalc may may ring a bell. Well, you may have studied it in your history books, but uh, it was the very advent of that era. Uh, and I just think the Excel and the the electronic spreadsheet is the second biggest revolution after the computer in business analysis that there is. The the ability to Explore all sorts of different scenarios and do all sorts of sensitivity analysis testing of the assumptions that you're making. It's just opened up a whole new, new ability to look at things. What we see now is that one way that we've gone past the Excel world, the spreadsheet world is the data sets we're digging, uh, we're dealing with are too big for a spreadsheet. And so now we have to figure out how do we, how, how do we take advantage of the spreadsheet, but take advantage of it with b- very big data sets? And that's maybe the biggest change that, uh, uh, that I've, I've seen over time. Again, I don't underestimate 1984. When I started, I looked around the classroom. There was not a single laptop computer. <laughs> By 1995, every single person had a laptop computer open on their desk. Sometimes, in fact, we actually tell everyone to close their laptop. <laughs> because we're going to talk about the real world and how this is going to apply, and we don't want you to get too wrapped up in, you know, the precise calculations. But that's been the biggest difference. And then the second one is, how do we begin to um, supplement Excel when we have these very large data sets?
0: Well, one of the things that comes through if you read your ideas to action articles and even watch your faculty video on, on the website, is you've spent a lot of time in your career helping people bridge this, this seeming gap between analysis and intuition, right? What our gut tells us uh, we should do. And I'm curious, it's always a fun question to ask faculty, how did you get interested in this particular work?
1: Well, I... I uh... <laughs> Um I often think back on something that happened before I ever decided what I wanted to do and and this is during that period right after college when I went and taught math and coached basketball. I was the assistant coach to my uh to a head coach who had also been my coach in college and um we uh we inherited a team that had lost 36 consecutive games. So this is a great situation there's nowhere to go but up. Um first game of the year is a home game late in the game the score is tied the excitement in the building is palpable we call time out and and the coach and i uh he and i we huddle up to decide what kind of strategy we're gonna implement i think i was arguing for some kind of zone press or something uh, but i capped my argument with hey coach no guts no glory and without missing a beat he said yeah coach no brains no job we did what he wanted and we won the game, so everything was fine. But I've often thought back on that because that is really the thing that we struggle with is that our intuition, which has been shaped primarily by our experiences in life. Uh, it is, it is such a powerful force. How in the world can analytics have an impact on that? Because that is so much a bigger part of who we are. <laughs> you, you know, think about this, Brett. Uh, how many times have someone made a decision and it gone wrong and they said, I should have gone with my gut? How many times have you heard someone say, oh, I should have gone with the analysis? No, you don't say that because that's not as powerful as this gut and this intuition you've got. So what I've really been fascinated to me is how do you, how do you create the, the circumstances under which analysis has the best chance of influencing what you actually decide to do. And as you may know from some of the stuff that I've written, one of the solutions is you need to learn analysis better. And that is somewhat helpful, but I think that's limited. And the example I use uh, for why that's limited is uh, let's say analysis is about engineering better seeds for crops. So I have done analysis and I've engineered these really great seeds. If I then turn around and throw them on a concrete floor, it doesn't matter how good the seeds are. Nothing's going to happen. In this analogy, the floor is that intuition. It's our background. It's our experiences. It's everything that this analysis is going to land on. And so I think just as important uh, as understanding what the analytical techniques are telling you is preparing the soil. How do you prepare it to receive those seeds? And I think that there's a, there are a lot of little tips that maybe in that article I talked about, uh, and I spend a lot of time now with senior executives talking about how do you create uh, circumstances where uh, your junior folks and the folks doing all the analysis can be doing analysis that is most useful to you, because it actually is analysis that might make a difference in how you feel about a particular
0: situation. One of the things I'm curious about, I'm thinking about our MBA students. Right, So you're coming to an MBA program and you're learning all these tools. Um, this is a conjecture, but sometimes I wonder when you start gaining all these techniques and tools and this really formalized structure for unpacking problems, you, the gut kind of gets pushed aside, right? You, you, the, the intuition, you're like, ah, that was before I got to this program. Now I'm an MBA student. I have to think about things in, in a very MBA way. Um, how do you get students comfortable with this, this balance? You know, the, the fact that intuition does play. An important role here
1: i think i think um first of all if they if they don't if they walk out the door thinking oh it's all about all i got to do is go apply these amazing techniques uh the world is going to educate them very quickly (laughs) the world is going to tell Is going to they're going to discover that it it is um when i first started teaching so this was almost 40 years ago i went to the first alumni day uh, when I was a first-year faculty member. So I didn't know any of the alums that were here at the time. Um, but I ran into one, and, uh, and, and uh, she asked, what was I teaching? And I told her, you know, quantitative analysis, as we called it at the time. And she just started shaking her head. She said, you know, I walked out the door with all of these amazing techniques, and I spent the first six months of my job Simply trying to help the people I worked with and my bosses understand the concept of net present value, and how that you needed to take into account the timing of when you were going to receive money, in evaluating how good a project was. So, um, I, I I think that's an example. It goes back to that thing you you said about communication. Uh, you, you can. There's communication with others, but there's also communication with ourselves. There's how do we make analysis speak to ourselves? And I think at some point, you got to get yourself ready to hear the analysis. Um, I I remember an example uh, uh, when I was in the dean's office. uh, We were we were trying to decide if we should uh, launch a particular new program or not. And there was a question about was there enough demand for this program? The faculty was split right down the middle. Half the faculty thought, uh, yeah, there's enough support. The other half the faculty thought, uh, no, I don't think there is. So I, in my role, I'm not really proud of this. Uh, I, I, um, I allowed a $50,000 market research study. That was back when $50,000 was money, was real money back then, um, to, uh, to do some market research. When the research came back, um, It was that the people who who believed the support was strong enough, they absolutely, the numbers supported them. They said, see, the people who did not think it was strong enough, the numbers supported them. And they were able to say, see, so the exact same analysis didn't change anybody's mind. I think the reason it didn't is we didn't spend enough time up front talking about what are the results we might get and putting some stakes in the ground. If the results say this, then I'm gonna be willing to revisit my position. Uh, And I think had we done that, we might've ended up coming up with something that might really have made a difference instead of basically just flushing $50,000 down the toilet, which is what it ended up being.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because it touches on the ideas to action article we're kind of talking around. And and the question is, you know, I I should say that the article in question is the most important and least asked question in business. And what you advocate for in that article is essentially kind of more of a scientific method approach to these kinds of where you start with a hypothesis, essentially.
1: Yep, you do. You start with a hypothesis, which in my mind, Uh, You know, this is where we deviate a bit from the scientific method because um, what I'm about to say will sound a little different to to people who are really um, embedded in that. Um, The hypothesis is what you currently believe. It's what your intuition and experience is currently telling you. And then the question is, all right, we're going to go and we're going to look at some data. And what I'm looking for should be (laughs) What in that data is going to make me question my belief? What is it that, if the data says this, is going to cause me to think about? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Maybe, maybe my intuition and experience is not right in this particular uh, situation. So that's why I, I say most important and uh, uh, least asked question is what could change my mind. Uh, acknowledge upfront. Just acknowledge. Hey, my intuition is telling me this. And incidentally, also, I probably say in the article, this notion of uh, don't jump to conclusions, stay objective. I don't think it's possible. I think the research shows us that even if you're not consciously aware of it, your mind jumps to a conclusion as soon as any data enters it. It, it starts tending positive or negative. Acknowledge that upfront, because if you don't acknowledge it upfront, it's going to pop up later. <laughs> and it's gonna pop up in ways you don't recognize it. It's gonna pop up with things like, oh, you didn't look at the right data. You didn't collect the right data. You didn't ask the right questions. It's gonna find all sorts of reasons not to believe the analysis. But if you acknowledge that upfront and then honestly ask yourself, all right, what is it I could see in this data that would really make me think twice about this? And doing that work, I think upfront makes the analysis far more powerful. Jeff Bezos, whatever you think of Jeff Bezos uh, of Amazon, if you go and read much about philosophy of organization, uh, I read one piece that he wrote where he, it was an article about him where he said, and this is almost a quote, our managers change their mind every single day. There's a culture there that says, We are constantly looking to prove ourselves wrong. And, uh, I think that that is a, a, that, that's exactly the opposite of what I see going on so much in business, which is once my intuition is telling me something, my search is for data that's going to confirm what it is I already believe. Uh, and you know, I, I don't think that really helps improve our decision making all that much because you don't even have to search for the data. You can just decide what to do if you're gonna look for data that only supports what it is you're, you wanna do anyway.
0: Well, I appreciate the note there because it's actually picking up on a thread that's run through some of our recent conversations when we talked with June West and we talked with Andy Wicks about encountering perspectives or uh, experiences different than your own that might challenge your kind of worldview and the importance of, of hearing those things and sort of asking the question, and Andy said this out, out loud in the office hour session that we did with him, what would change my mind here uh, as you think about the sort of ultimate questions course uh, that he's uh, that he's teaching? And, and just a real importance around being open to that kind of questioning. If if not here, then then where in a, in a business program?
1: Absolutely. And, and in fact, I think you can think of an MBA program, Brett, as uh, uh, you're going to adopt a lot of, you're going to get a lot of new frameworks, a lot of new ways of looking at the world. There's a, you know, different marketing ways, different finance ways, different quantitative ways, different ethical ways to look at the world. And what you're doing is you're adding these to your toolkit so that you're able to pull them out and look at situations differently. And in some situations, the the maybe one of the tools you picked up in ethics is gonna to prove to be more useful. In some, that tool you picked up in finance is gonna to prove to be more useful. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why the case method, I think, is so valuable. Uh, the world does not present itself in silos. There is rarely a marketing issue, a finance issue. Almost every important issue has multiple facets to it and multiple consequences. So the the uh, the idea in using cases is, yes, if I'm using a case and we're trying to see what does the quantitative analysis tell us, we're doing that within the context of, well, what is the marketing telling us here? And what's the finance telling us here? What's the operations telling us here? So we're constantly across all the courses trying to help fit our framework within the other frameworks that you're looking at and that you're getting.
0: I want to pick up on something that you mentioned in passing but I think it's a really interesting thread here. You talked about talking with senior executives and business leaders and working with them to create these kind of conditions, uh, this the soil metaphor that you had referenced earlier within their within their companies. And one of the things I consistently hear from Darden faculty is how close they are to actual practice and people doing this work in the world and that's really where they spend a lot of their research effort and time. Do you want to share something about that? Because I think that is maybe a little bit different than what folks might see uh, at other schools.
1: Well, um, yeah, I mean, uh, th- that is one of the the main things that attracted me to Darden, frankly, was the very applied and the very practice uh, focused. Uh, and it was looking at the colleagues I would be joining and, and realizing that. Um, all of them are here teaching mainly because they love teaching. They could easily be making frankly a lot more money outside uh, doing other things and that's not always the case with people in my profession you know often they're professors because that that's really they, they may be they may be i I, I don't want to be uh, I better back off that. <laughs> I don't want to be overly critical of academicians, um, but it's it's people that you know uh, that if they weren't in academia, they would be successful business people because they care about all the aspects of business decision making. You know, it's one of the reasons, Brett, as you know, is why all of us are called professors of business administration, not professors of marketing or professors of finance, because we all adopt this holistic approach uh, to business and. We care. We care very deeply about how what we do impacts what's actually going on today. That's nothing negative about places that emphasize more of the deep research that's more long term in nature, because that's really valuable, too. Um, but I think the people who choose the faculty who choose to come to Darden is because we put a little more emphasis on more immediate impact of what it is we're studying and what it is that we're looking at and the kind of research that we're doing. So um, yeah, I, our exec ed program, I've taught ever since I got here. I love I love the folks who are actually working that actually have jobs. I love the folks who take two years off and come here, but those folks that are in the EMBA or professional MBA programs or in our exec ed programs, to be able to give them something that they come back a week later and say, wow, I just did this on my job. And I now understand something that I didn't. Uh and oh, by the way, thank you, because uh I think I really impressed my boss. You know, lots of little things like like that. But uh yeah, I I if if you gave me a choice between learning, uh being able to do more quantitative analysis and being able to help people apply simple analysis to make bigger impact on business, I, I would choose the latter uh every time.
0: I want to come back to the ideas to action article we were discussing because i think one of the things you mentioned in that article is that mathematical models when you talk about something like business which is an inherently social phenomenon as we have discussed earlier mathematical models you know do you, they may kind of come up against a certain limit to capture these kinds of social phenomenon and yet i feel and hopefully this doesn't seem like too hot of a take for our attendees I feel like there's been a lot of recent discussion in society as we look at, you know, trying to gauge an election or, uh, you know, look at, you know, particular outcomes of things and using mathematical tools to where is this going? Um, and do you feel like we have maybe too much belief in, in the math to kind of capture something that's as messy as, you know, people operating in a society?
1: Um I, I think the the you know I, I was teaching uh, some senior folks with a German company and I was asking them about you know the role of analysis in the decisions they make and uh, they all said it, at a current level known is mostly our experience and intuition they said but when we were junior folks coming up we did all sorts of analysis we used all of of the models and and I as I thought about that, I realized that those senior people, when you're junior, the the issues you're dealing with are maybe more bounded. The context is one that maybe there's a better chance that you can fit a mathematical model that will help you see something. As you move up and begin to deal with these more complicated issues facing business, there's just no way you can capture all aspects of it in a um in a single business model, I, I often will tell folks, and, and I know you're asking a slightly different question. I'll get back to it, but um, I often tell folks problems at that level are like elephants. And it reminds me of the story of the blind people and the elephant where uh, people who uh, who are, um, I guess, visually impaired are, are all brought up to an elephant and each one grabs a different part of the elephant and they're asked to describe what an elephant is. And everyone says something different because whoever grabs the tusk describes it one way, who grabs the trunk another way, a leg a different way still. Um, So the problems we face have all sorts of dimensions. Our challenge is we somehow need to see the whole elephant. The problem is the elephant is just too big. It's really just hard to see the whole elephant. So... What I would say is, let's maybe, maybe if we start with the skeleton of the elephant, instead of the whole elephant, let's just start with the skeleton. And for me, the skeleton are the basic economics of the situation. Once I get that skeleton in place, I can then go and think about, all right, now, what impact is adding this flesh on at this part of the skeleton? What impact does it have? Um, and so I, I think the, the, even for these complicated issues, the analysis can help play a structuring role to how you look at things, which will enable you to take the different pieces and balance them more equitably. Now, here's the final direct answer to your question is, yes, people rely too much on mathematical models, but the people who really know, and I'm gonna cite Nate Silver of the New York Times, um, when Obama won reelection, everyone said he was a genius. Because he predicted it, it was going to be close. He predicted it. Uh, When he gave uh, Hillary Clinton, when he predicted she would beat Donald Trump, he was excoriated for missing. I am sure he would tell you he did just as good a job in 2016 as he did in 2012. What people didn't understand is he was calibrating the uncertainty for them. And it just so happened that in 2012, it happened to hit right in the middle of what he said. He always said, here's the range about what might happen. And it happened to hit right in the middle, so everyone thought he was was a genius. And he included in his prediction a 25% chance that Trump would win the election. That was within his range of what he said might happen, but because he didn't hit the exact point, because most of his probability was in it going the other way, everyone said he was wrong. Everyone said he missed it. He he wasn't wrong. I I uh, I happen to remember when uh, the re-election of Obama was taking place in 2012. I asked an NBA student uh, to uh, estimate what they believed was the probability that he would get re-elected, and I took them through a series of of steps. And they finally reached the point that they agreed that they thought Obama had a 60 percent chance of being reelected. I then said, so if he loses in November, then you will have been wrong. And she said, yes, I would have missed it. Would she have missed it when she said a 60 percent chance he would be reelected? She's saying there's a 40 percent chance he will not be reelected. So she didn't really miss it. But what happened in her mind? As soon as she said so, anything above 50%, that became 100% in her mind. And so I think the challenge maybe, um, Brett, is less about we rely too much on mathematical models, although it's very dangerous if we do. It's more that we don't really understand the fundamentals of what they are telling us and how that might apply to how we think about a particular situation. I'm sure most of the people building these models would say, boy, if you're thinking this is truth, you're wrong. (laughs) This is one way of looking at it and it's telling us one thing and make sure you understand, I'm telling you, here's what I know, but here's what I don't know.
0: Well, I'm struck by the stories uh, that you're sharing here and how that when we have something in our mind, we may seek out information that confirms uh, that. And so you might look at a model that expresses a certain amount of uncertainty and sort of discount that uncertainty and just gravitate towards the fact that there's more than a 50% chance uh, that something happens. And so coming back to your point around uh, assumptions or the the things that we're telling ourselves in our head, the data can just further reinforce that um, if we don't acknowledge that as we begin this process.
1: Right. You know, I sometimes use the example of uh, you have two weather forecasters and let's say you live in a place where it rains 20% of the days, you've got one forecaster who comes on every single day, every day and says there's a 20% chance of rain today. You've got another forecaster who comes on and says either there's a 0% chance of rain or there's a 100% chance of rain every day. Which forecaster do you prefer? Well, people all too often naturally say, well, I want the one who tells me whether it's going to rain or not. But the hidden assumption there is you only want them if they're right. If you can believe what they say, then you prefer that person. But if they tell you it's not going to rain and it rains, they've actually maybe been more harmful than the person who just tells you there's a 20% chance of rain. So I think that's an example of not really necessarily uh, understanding what different, what different, uh, ways of expressing uncertainty, what they're communicating.
0: I want to come back to basketball for just a second as we kind of wrap, wrap up. I mean, we talked about basketball, your your time as a basketball coach and you even have an ideas to action article out there about the NCAA basketball tournament, which uh, for UVA folks is near and dear, uh, to, to their heart as March rolls around and, uh, the men's basketball team and women's basketball team may be looking forward to postseason runs. One of the things that you shared in in the article that's on ideas to action is that when you look at one model, it can tell you something, but then when you make a composite of several models, that might actually even be a better way uh, to look at a particular problem. Why, why does the math work in, in that way? I, I'm just curious.
1: Well, um, I, I mean, it, it's sort of referred to as wisdom of the crowds with an asterisk. Um, uh, you know, the, if we get a lot of different people's opinion, uh, extreme opinion sort of gets balanced out a little bit. And uh, I, I'm I I'm, in any given situation, an extreme opinion might actually turn out to be correct. An extreme prediction might turn out to be correct. But if you're looking across all sorts of predictions, those ones that are less extreme, tend to be more systematically correct than the ones that are at the extremes and one way to to, to eliminate the impact of the extremes is to get uh, the predictions from different people and putting them together now um the asterisk i put beside wisdom of the crowds is you don't really need much of a crowd uh and in fact you i think to me you got to be a little careful because as we know with things like the stock market crowds get carried away what was the phrase the guy used uh Irrational exuberance, something like that years ago. Um, But if you have a small group of people who are relative experts, then it's almost always better to combine their forecasts rather than to just follow one of them uh, individually. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm a, a, you know, it's a, it's a way of protecting yourself against those biases that you have built in experience is a wonderful thing but it's only wonderful the extent to which it actually applies to the next situation uh so, someone made a, showed an example once they said look if i sit here and watch you flip a coin a thousand times do i think i'm going to be better at predicting what you're going to toss the next time no <laughs> I have a lot of experience watching you toss a coin, but there's still only a 50 50 chance of it being heads or tails. That experience really isn't relevant to what's going to happen next. So, um, I, uh, I want to, I want people with, I want to, I want to have a way to protect myself from over reading, over projecting my personal experience into the future. And that's one of the things by getting multiple. Viewpoints together, and incidentally, you might know one of the valuable one of the things you should do if you're going to get multiple viewpoints is get people to make a prediction before they talk to each other, because as soon as they start talking to each other, they're going to start influencing each other. So get them to give their prediction first, then bring them together and let them talk about it. Um, leads to a more interesting and and uh, more likely to to move the needle a little bit.
0: Well, Robert, this has been a a great conversation. I've appreciated all your insights about the Darden community and and the research that you've done and and the work that you've done working with business leaders uh, out in the world. I wonder what advice you might have for the incoming students uh, on Mm -hmm. on the call. You know, they are about to start school. It's a special time of year here at the Darden School of Business as we're going to have come August 15th. I think about six hundred or so plus students here on grounds between the full-time MBA, executive MBA, part-time MBA students who be kicking things off that day. What would you want these students to know as they begin their Darden journey?
1: Well, I think first of all, get excited uh, and and try to take a little vacation so that you got the energy once you get here because things are gonna go fast once you get here. We uh, we we believe in marching right along, so uh, be ready for that. In in terms of. Um, for me the more you know excel and i think this might even apply to the MBA and the professional mba programs even though i said we don't expect you to be able to do as much in excel the more comfortable you are with excel i think the easier uh, some of the analysis across all of the courses becomes so uh if you have a calculator you regularly use throw it away and just go in Excel and start using, uh, doing your calculations there, and you know any any little thing you can do to begin to uh, Excel is a language, Brett. And we know you don't you don't get a crash course and learn a language. A language is something you learn by practicing it over time, by immersing yourself in it. That's kind of the way Excel is. So that would be my main advice: is if you got time to spend doing anything, spend trying to get more comfortable with Excel.
0: Robert, we like to leave our attendees, if they've gotten interested in the topics that we've discussed here, some of the things that you've shared, we like to give our attendees a next step you know, or two, a book they might be able to go out and read. And uh, we've gotten some really great book recommendations along the way. Anything that you might recommend for the folks who joined us today?
1: Uh, yeah, you may have had this book recommended before. Actually, Daniel Kahneman is the name that comes up, who won the Nobel Prize and has done a lot of work about this whole balancing between intuition and analysis. Um, and so he's got a book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, which is a great read and sort of describes, uh, he and a, and a, a colleague of his, um, Alan Tversky, who has passed away now. Um, and, and actually, uh, 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 I always blank on this guy's name. Um, the name of the book is The Undoing Project. Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis wrote The Undoing Project, which is sort of a biography of these two and how their ideas emerge. That's a great starting place for people who maybe don't want to get quite as deep into the, uh, into the details as thinking fast and slow. So uh, I heartily make or recommend that. Uh, for those of you who are a little skeptical and want to read more, I, I will give you a name and the name is Gigerinzer. He's a German. Uh, I'm not sure of any particular book he's got, but if you Google him, then I'm sure you'll find books. Uh, And he actually is a counterpoint to this idea of intuition and analysis being two separate things. He actually thinks they're more intertwined. And I think it's really interesting to consider his ideas as well. Uh, And on that score, the pushing intuition i think most of us know malcolm gladwell and the book blink is the one where he really lets us know that our intuition actually tells us stuff that our our conscious brains our analytical minds are not aware of all the time so it's uh, it's really a useful read to try to see some examples of that
0: well thank you robert and thank you for for your time today and to our attendees thank you for joining us uh, for today's conversation. The recording of this conversation, as always, will be up on the Discover Darden blog, as well as our admissions podcast, Experience Darden, and Exec MBA podcast in the in the coming weeks. And uh, my boss, Donna Clark, will be back next week with an office hours conversation with our Senior Associate Dean for the Professional Degree Programs, Yael gruska kane And so we encourage you to join for that. Uh, but thank you all for being here. Thank you to Maggie Dodson, as, al- as always, for her support. As we have navigated this conversation, thank you for all the good questions in the Q&A and for being such an engaged audience. And uh, hope you stay safe, have a wonderful weekend, and thank you as always. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, bye-bye. And that was my interview with Robert Caraway, the Yorgos Alianis Distinguished Associate Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at darden, that's d a r d e n, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.